Good morning, church. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. As Stephen said, we're going to be in Mark 9, 14 through 29, uh, which actually has one of my favorite verses, perhaps one of the most important verses for the Christian life. Mm -hmm. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. All right. Verse 14. And when they came to, or, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and, scri and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and the spirit saw him, and immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him even into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just by show of hands this morning, has, has anyone here ever run out of gas before? Run out of gas. You can be honest. Go ahead. Hold them up high. There's no embarrassment, no shame. All right? Look at all you irresponsible adults. You know there's a gas gauge, right? Like... All right, so uh, I ran out of gas with a friend when I was 20 years old. Uh, I was in college at APU. We just finished up our fall semester, I think of our uh, sophomore year, or something like that. And we had just finished up our finals. And so we kind of were like feeling a little bit like carefree. We we're like, hey, let's go do something. This is exciting, right? We're done with school for, for a few weeks. And so um, I, was, I was thinking, you know, my, my buddy Arthur was like, let's go do something fun. I was like, nickel, nickel, that sounds fun, like Brazilian barbecue, uh, some places near APU, right? And so I was excited about maybe those as a possibility, and he says, let's go to Ensenada. I was like, really? He's like, let's, let's go to Ensenada, I want some tacos, let's, I want to see the ocean, right? Like, I'm like, all, all right, and he's like, he's like, I'll drive. And so my, my buddy Arthur, he, uh, he drove a 1980 Datsun, and um, I, I know that because the summer beforehand, I helped him paint it. And we're not like painters of cars, okay? We literally went to Home Depot, bought some high-gloss house paint, and painted his car white. So this is the kind of car that we are driving to Mexico in. Um, 
And so we're, we're on our way. Uh, I could go, I pack a, a quick overnight bag. Um, we don't know where we're staying or anything, but we just jump into his Datsun, turns the car on, it's fine, and so we start driving. Um, we start driving on the south, south on the 5, and after about an hour or so, the car starts making some noises. And um, I think we're like in the second lane, like right in the middle there on the freeway near the Orange Crush. And um, I, I, I hear the car start to kind of like crumble and not work anymore, and he, he's able to pull the car off just as it completely stops. And um, I'm looking at him like, what, what happened to your car? Like, like you know, as a 41-year-old, I'm like, I, lots of things could have been wrong with that car at that point. But at the time, I was like, you have a perfectly good car. What happened to your car? <laughs> and um, I had no idea. It was a complete mystery to me. But this is what happens when you run out of gas, apparently. And so running out of the gas was not even on my radar, partly because his gas gauge said it was at half full. And I, I asked him about it, and I was like, hey, what's, what's up? It still says half full. And he's like, well, that's like not, doesn't work. Like, you just have to do some math and, like, figure out how many miles you have to go. Kind of one of those cars. Maybe you guys have had a car like that before. And, um, and so we're, we're sitting there on the edge of the road, and I'm going to stop there with the story. We'll pick it up later. But I do want to talk about what it's like to run out of gas. And I think that it's interesting because gasoline, like a lot of commodities, is one of those things you don't think about until you're out of it, or at least close to being out of it, right? You don't really think about gas, unless you're my dad, who always thinks about having a full tank, and he's kind of of that generation, that ilk of like, you always have to have your gas tank full. But most regular people don't think about gas until you're almost out of gas. You're driving, that little light comes on, and then you have that feeling like, oh, like we're going to find a gas station somewhere, right? And, and I bring this up because I'm convinced that a lot of people think about faith in the same way, meaning... That, that they think about faith as something that, as a default, they have plenty of. They're, they're faith-filled, especially Christians who think of themselves as being filled with faith, filled with the Spirit, filled with, with hope, and all these, these positive things in, in the faith that we think about. And it's not until something happens that they realize it's a lack of faith. Um, that's kind of the dynamic that happens. And so difficulty or emergency strikes, maybe it's sickness or temptation, and they realize, like, oh, shoot, like, I don't have enough here to get me through um, in, in regards to my faith. And our faith can, can wane, and we be, become immediately aware that we don't have enough. And this is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, uh, as the disciples and Jesus come up against an obstacle. And there's, there's, a, there's a degree of faith that is lacking in, in all parties involved. And so here's our big idea this morning as we jump into this section of scripture. It's very simple, but true. Jesus wants to help grow our faith in him. That's the simple thing that I want you to walk away with this morning. Jesus wants to help grow our faith in him. And I, I love this passage. Um, Jesse loves this passage. I thought Jesse was to start preaching, by the way. He was like talking about, <laughs> hey man, maybe later, okay? <laughs> um, I love this passage because it's so relatable, right? It's like we don't have enough. We don't have enough faith. We, we come up short so often, and maybe you can relate too, and maybe you're here this morning, and, and you're up against it, and your faith feels like it's just not enough, and I'm praying that this will encourage you in real time. Um, I'm praying that this will be something where, man, even if, even if you're going through something relatively smooth, there's, there's good things happening, you can be encouraged today in order to kind of tuck that away for another time in the future. I think sometimes the Lord works in that way. So the first thing I want you guys to see in this story is an absence of faith, the absence of faith. Verse 14, let's read 9, 14 together. And, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, 
and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So kind of like a teacher that comes upon a fight at recess, Jesus comes down, he sees the crowd, he sees the scribes, they start getting into this conversation. And it starts to turn into an argument, and the disciples are going at it with one another. And, and like any good teacher, you teachers know kind of like the personalities in your classrooms, there's, there's those who you know instigate fights and kind of get into people's, you know, frustrate folks, and even kind of the bullies in the classroom. And so he doesn't even talk to the disciples, he just looks at the scribes in verse 16 and says, what are you arguing with them about? Why are you arguing, right? Like, what's, what's this all about? And then the crowd sees Jesus. They get all excited. They're like, okay, great, crisis here now. Before the scribes can even answer, um, the, the story kind of brings us to the, kind of the, the, the main part of it with this dad here. And this dad steps forward, and he describes this truly tragic and heartbreaking situation. Let's read about it in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, I asked your disciples, um, where am I at here? Sorry. I asked your disciples, cast it out, and they were not able. Uh, notice, I want you to notice right from the start here, as the dad's talking about his son and what is ailing him, that the dad has, has belief initially. And I, I point that out because he's there. He's, he showed up to the spot where he knew Jesus would be. And so he had a degree of belief that he brought to the table to start with. And then as time goes on, I, I kind of feel like what happens in the story is, is that the, the belief kind of wanes because he's looking for Jesus. By the way, Jesus is still up on the mountain out of the transfiguration. Jesus can, can help, he's thinking. Unfortunately, he can't be found. And so dad turns to the disciples. And he says, well, you guys are kind of like Jesus, and you're with him all the time, so maybe you guys can help out. Hey, my, my son has, has all these issues. What do you say? Can you help us out here? And at the very least, dad thought the disciples were supposed to be like the rabbi, and we can't get the best thing, but we'll get next best thing. And the disciples were not able to do it. It's actually very interesting here, because if you recall, earlier in Mark, Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. He had given them authority to do miracles in his name, and they can't seem to make it work. And it doesn't say why or how that happens. I don't know if there's a degree of arrogance or just a lack of faith on the disciples' part. I'm not sure if one guy stepped up and is like, all right, let's go, let's do it. And he starts to get into his whole demon-casting kind of experience, and it just doesn't work. And so another guy comes in, it's like, all right, my, my turn. Uh, I'm going to step it up. And then they tag team, and it's like two people praying over this guy. I'm not sure. It doesn't say exactly what it looked like. But all it does show us is that they're not able to get this demon out of the sun. And Jesus doesn't leave everyone in suspense as to why. Actually, he explains the reason for the defeat, and he kind of goes into this very like Old Testament prophet mode. He, he speaks about himself in a way that, that people aren't used to hearing. And he says to the crowd that you're a faithless generation. You are a faithless generation. The crowds, the scribes, my disciples, uh, why couldn't they cast him out? It was an absence of faith. Now, if you're new today, I should just tell you that Jesus isn't often exasperated with the disciples as, as much as it seems like he is here. He actually has a ton of patience. 
uh, throughout the Gospels. They, they say and do things all the time that seem a little bit backwards, and, and it's like, why are you doing this? And Jesus is very patient. He's very kind. And it seems like, for some reason, this time, it just pushes him to a point of frustration. And he even says, this like, kind of double whammy. He's like, look, I won't always be here to hold your hand. You know, how long do I have to put up with a lack of your faith? And that's, there's really two points of application here, depending on kind of where you're at this morning in Jesus' response. If you're new this morning, if you are, if you are checking out the Christian faith uh, in, in a new way, in a fresh way, if you're searching out who God is and, and you know, his plans for your life, what does the Bible have to say? I, I want to show you that even back then, Jesus thought that there was enough on record for people to still make decisions about faith and, and, and feel good about that decision. And he says, you're a faithless generation, meaning that you, you should have enough evidence, and yet you still don't believe. He says that to them back in the time. And look, we even get more content on this side of the cross. We even get more evidence on this side of the cross. And so that rebuke in a way for us, it's like, wow, that, there's, there's plenty of things to have faith about, Christian. Uh, I think I mentioned this a few weeks back. I, I would submit to you, if you're seeking, this is not the time to fold your arms and sit back and ask God to impress you with his miracles. He's already done plenty to show you exactly who he is. I, I submit that this is the time to lean into what he's already said. There's enough here to make a step of faith, and I encourage you to do that. Now, I would imagine most of you have done that. Um, look around the room. Most of you are probably church veterans. Maybe you, you have a thriving relationship with the Lord. I would hope that. And if you're a follower, notice that people will look to you when they cannot find Jesus. Oftentimes, I, I think about that, even in my own role as a pastor, sometimes people are, are searching hard for God. They're, they're in, in it, right? They're trying to figure out what does this mean? And so they'll go to somebody else who apparently has a relationship with Jesus, and they'll talk to that person. And so maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And they're looking for God. They can't find him. They can't see him. They can't hear from him. And so they will go to you and ask you about your relationship with the Lord. And this is a heavy thing because when Jesus is not in sight, people will look to his followers and expect them to act like him. And so I don't want to put guilt on you, but this is just true. If you profess to know Christ, but you're unloving, what does that say about our, our Christ? If you profess to know Christ, but you're unavailable, if you profess to know Christ and you're unwilling to show help or show love or minister to, to needy people, I, I think that some people might think that Jesus is like that. Now, I think that that's partly between them and Jesus, but as Christians, can we do more to provide a witness that would point people to Christ in a positive way? And so this absence of faith frustrates Jesus. And so the next thing I want to point out, though, is... I want to speak to you about the object of our faith. Number two, the object of our faith. And you look at verse 20, we see this interaction between Jesus and the demon. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? By the way, I, I, I think there's two ways to kind of read that question. There's kind of this very... Um, kind of like medical, kind of like muted way of thinking about like, so tell me about his symptoms and how long has this been happening? I think Jesus is more of like his heart's breaking, right? He's like, 
how long have you guys been going through this? This is so hard. And he answers from childhood and has often cast him into fire, into water, destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. When the demon sees Jesus, it freaks out, right? It immediately throws the boy into what would we would describe in our kind of scientific world as a seizure, a severe one. And Jesus sees the boy firsthand and asks, how long has he been going through this? Now, you don't have to be a parent to imagine a child going through this situation. It would just be so hard, right? To have a demon throw your kid into water, toss him into fire. And a demon wants to destroy this young kid's image-bearing, like, face, right? His, his creation of God himself. And the demon is bent on destruction. And so mom and dad can never let him out of sight because of what might happen, knowing this demon is bent on killing their son. But the tragedy comes in, I think, because of the disciples' failure. I, I think the dad's faith has taken a hit. You might see it. I brought my son to you. The disciples couldn't do anything. And the dad says, look, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And it makes me wonder if dad would have phrased it that way if Jesus was there to start with. But now at this point in the story, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. The, the dad's faith goes from being rock solid to being willing to take anything he can get. It's kind of like this ask, like, hey, my, my kid has cancer. I realize it's inoperable, but I, but I apply to make a wish, and it looks like we're going to have that Disney trip work out, and that'll, that'll be nice. It's kind of like this consolation prize, right? And the father makes this a mistake that I think some of us do, that you can't always judge Jesus based upon his people. One of the great stumbling blocks to people taking a step of faith is someone who professes faith in Christ and, and acts contrary to that profession. It's called hypocrisy, right? In our, in our minds, we are on the look, up, look for it all the time. And so we, we, some of us just are bent to seeing fake Christians, and it's like we want to see them and call them out. And it's, it's, not, it's not about being fake. The disciples aren't fake. They clearly have a relationship with Jesus. It's just the disciples aren't the ones that we want you to look at here. We want to direct your gaze to Christ. He's the perfect one. And so that's what the story is about. It's, it's the object of their faith is Christ. It's not the disciples. It's not some magic words. Because we fail all the time. It brings me no joy to admit that, but it's true. I don't always live a life that honors Christ. Just flat out true. I say one thing, I do another thing. I do things that I know will displease the Lord. And if you were to watch me 24-7, you would probably have doubts, right, about my Jesus too. But I, I tell you, I'm the failure, not him. Jesus never fails. And while this dad's faith has taken a hit, Jesus responds beautifully. He's going to direct and embolden his faith. Look at verse 23. He says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus essentially says, listen, dad, the variable in the equation is not me. The variable in the equation is your ability to believe in me. Think about that for a minute. It's really important that we understand that. This one 
Dad, is, is not riding on my back. It's on yours to believe. At first, listen, it could seem a little harsh, but Jesus, I believe, is teaching this man and us right now how faith works. This is how faith works, church. Okay? The Father cries out with words that I'm, I'm confident we can all relate to. I believe. Kind of. Like, I, I believe mostly, but help, help me in the areas where I'm unbelieving still. I believe, help my unbelief. And I tell you, there's too many people in the church that think, well, that's precisely the dad's problem. He didn't have enough faith. He doesn't believe enough, right? Like, if he believed, he would actually, uh, this would be no problem at all. And so he goes on record and says, I believe, help my unbelief. As if we expect Jesus to say, well, that's the, that's the issue, dude. Like, that's the problem. That's the, that's the issue why your son has gone through this all your, your life. You still have doubt. And I'm, man, maybe you've thought that way before. Maybe you've felt shamed before spiritually, where you're at your wit's end, you're asking for prayer, and people are like, hey, you just have to have more faith. Well, okay, how? Like, how am I supposed to have more faith? Like, how does that work? I don't know what else to tell you, but you need to have more faith. And here's what's awesome, is Jesus doesn't respond to his faith the way that I think that maybe I would or you would. Jesus does not say, that's your issue, have more faith. Listen, this is so key for us to understand. It's not the measure or depth of faith that you possess that causes a response in Jesus. It's the object you place, whatever little faith you might have in that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. It's not the amount of faith we have. It's the object. The critical factor is not that the dad expressed doubt. He clearly has doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. The critical factor is that he turns to Jesus about the doubt that he has. And he offers up, this is, this is all I got. His entire cry is a cry of faith. He says, help me. I believe you can help my son. I believe that you can, you can do this. But, but he's not resting on, on, on just that. He's putting it in front of Jesus and saying, this is flawed. I realize that. And so this is the wisdom of God. This is not the wisdom of the world. The world says something different, by the way. Let, let me give you an example. Financial investors will tell you that if you have a chunk of cash to invest, invest, you should never put all that money in one place. Right? Have you heard this before? What's it called? Diversifying. Yeah, it's, it's called being, diversifying your, your investments, right? Meaning you invest a little money over here. Uh, right in the, in the bank, a little money over here, in bonds and stocks, a little money in baseball cards, I don't know, whatever, right? In gold, and real estate, you spread it out. And only a financial fool would have everything that they, they have, all their, their, their lump sum, into one category. That would be foolish to do that. Because if the economy crashes, you're sunk, right? So no, you diversify. That's what wise people do. You spread it out. You don't put all your money in baseball cards, Right? This is potentially good advice when dealing with investments, but listen, this is not the way a Christian invests his or her faith. This is not the way that we are called to spread our faith around and make sure that we're covered. We are called to put every hope into Jesus and to him alone. It's not my ability that I'm going to lean back on. It's not that I've been through this before and I can go through this again. It's not that I can write a check and make this problem go away. It is all Jesus. It's all resting on him. It's him alone. It's for all my needs, all my aspirations, all my fears, and all my hope. He is the object of my faith. And so let me ask you this morning, not how much faith do you have, but what is the object of the faith that you do have? 
Is it in Jesus? Or is it in Jesus plus? Is there a chance you're hedging your bets? Is there a chance you're diversifying your faith portfolio? Are you leaning on your experience? Are you leaning on your talents? Are you leaning on, on friends and community? Contrary to what the world trusts in, the object of our faith needs to be Christ. This is where the power rests, and we see the power of faith. That's point three, the power of faith, verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus had heard all he needed to hear from the man. Jesus heard he had faith. Jesus heard that he had doubt. But all of it was placed in Jesus' lap. And for Christ, that was enough. And so he sees the crowd starts to grow. Jesus is like, I have to expedite the situation. Let's get this going here. And so he makes the rarest, actually, of double commands. And he commands the demon, you're going to get out, and you're never coming back again. He says two things, two commands. And this is a permanent change for this young boy. This is amazing. This is a promise of change. The demon leaves. The demon is not coming back. But at the demon hearing this command from Jesus, the demon kind of throws one last hissy fit, right? He's like, I'm going to just do one last thing on the way out here. And he throws this young kid down, and his exit is so intense, the child appears to have died from it. So much so, people are actually saying that. It looks like he, he died. He, he's dead. So just for a second, let's just step back and think through the, the emotional roller coaster that this dad has gone through. Um, starting at the morning, it's gotten so bad, maybe the weekend before. It, it's, it's gotten so, so bad that his kid has, has hurt himself again, that this demon has thrown him into water or fire or in the middle of the road once again. That's it, that morning, I'm taking him to Jesus. Jesus isn't there. Well, that's disappointing. The disciples try and help. They can't make it happen. No one can do anything. They're like, where's Jesus? Jesus finally comes down from this, this mountain. Great timing, Jesus, right? And finally, he's standing there. He gives me this lesson on faith. I tell him, I, I believe, but I, I kind of don't believe. I have, I have some doubts as well. And then he kills my son, right? Like, I knew I didn't have enough faith, right? Like, imagine what this dad is going through how heartbreaking this day is for him. And I, I just want to kind of, before we get to the good part of this, this child being uh, revived and, and, and reconciled, like, it doesn't always happen this way, but a warning may be helpful here. When you take a step of faith, when you experience God do something in your life, it doesn't always mean that life is going to get easy all of a sudden. Sometimes things happen that are hard right afterwards. I remember... Um, I used to be a youth pastor, um, feels like a million years ago, but I was a youth pastor. We would do like these student retreats or camps, and we'd have these momentous moments where, where kids would go through, you know, life transformation, right? And they would go through these changes, and people would, would see like there'd be tears of emotion, there'd be life change on, on the way down from the mountain, and then they'd go home, and everything would seemingly fall apart. Kind of would happen every time, right? Like it almost to the point where, like as a youth pastor or someone in youth ministry, you would warn the kids, and it's like, hey, when you go down from the mountain, right, that, that kind of nomenclature, that language was common. It's like, when you get down there, it's going to be hard. Like the enemy's going to attack you. Your family's not going to be happy with you. 
Like, school's going to be hard, right? Like, so we all know that a step of faith is not without stumbles. And in this story, fortunately, it's a small bump in the road because for this father, the end of his day ends in a good way. The boy's not dead. And so Jesus goes up to grab his hand. He raises him up, and he stands him up before him. And I just want to say Jesus is willing to do the same thing for you. He's willing to grab your hand and pull you up and, and bring you back from the dead. That's ultimately what our salvation is. He, he, he brings us back from a, a death spiritually that we could never uh, kind of recover from on our own. And he does this for us. The boy appeared dead. And listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's how you appear as well to, to God. Maybe you look like you're alive and functioning, like physically, but you are spiritually dead on the inside. And that's how you are seen by our Father. Because your sin has separated you from God, and that separation has caused a spiritual death. And so there's no amount of effort, no amount of volunteering, no amount of checks you can write or good deeds you can do to deliver yourself from that spiritual death. You have to rely on Christ alone. We all have sin that separates us from the Father. And because of Jesus, we have a way to relationship with him. So he reaches down, and he picks up this young boy. And he can do the same for us as well. Jesus did this to display and to tell you, tell, tell this family of his great love for them. And again, I think that applies to us as well. He loves you immeasurably. He loves you immeasurably. And he looks at you in your sin and he says, how long have you been like this? How long has it been like this for you? And he asked that question with, compassion. How long have you been carrying this burden? I want to give you life. And so we see this miracle happen with Jesus and this, this dad. As we close this up, there's kind of a, a recap here at the end. There's kind of a, a bit of a coach's huddle here. The disciples have some questions, and they're wondering, like, what was that all about? And why couldn't we be a part of that? And what was going on there? So uh, point four is, is simply the key to faith. Verses 28 and 29, as we wrap this up. Verse 28 says this, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The minute they go into the house, the Gospel of Mark kind of always uses these houses as a private debrief time. It's going kind of into the locker room after the game and talking about the, the game. And the disciples don't understand. And so they ask have this practical question of, well, why could you do it, but why could we not accomplish this? And on one hand, I think that you may expect Jesus to tell them what he already told them. You are a faithless generation. You didn't have enough belief. But Jesus tells them how to get what they do not have. The answer to increasing in your faith is not found digging deeper into just telling yourself you have to have more faith. If you're here and you would desire to have more faith, that, that, that happens, Jesus says, through prayer. It's through prayer that this happens. It's through prayer that we grow our faith. It's through prayer that we keep Jesus at the, the center of our faith and the object of our lives. And, and so Jesus would say just to that dad, he'd say to us, the problem isn't me, it's you. You need to pray more. You need to pray more. And prayer reminds us of our desperate need for Christ. And there are certain things, listen, that we'll just encounter in life that can only be handled by prayer. 
Some of you have things coming to your mind right now, things that you've gone through, and the only reason that you have been able to get through that is because you relied on the Lord in prayer through that season. And it's supposed to be that way. It's so instructive that Jesus says this kind. If you want, underline that, highlight that. That's interesting. He says kind, the kind of demon can only come out by prayer. What is Jesus suggesting? He's saying, you guys have some history. You have some pretty decent track record. You've cast out demons before, but this kind, this one, you can't rest on your resume. This one, you can't do it yourself. And, and let's be real. There are lots of things that you and I can do apart from prayer. There are, just flat out. You can probably pass a math test without praying about it, right? You can just rest on your experience or, right, like just your, your understanding about it. You can give some time. You can do that. You can walk across the street, welcome a new neighbor to your house, without praying about it. You can be hospitable without prayer. There are many things that are positive, moral, and even somewhat spiritual that you can do apart from prayer. But I find it interesting that Jesus chooses to end this conversation with the disciples and saying, but some things you can't. Like when, when fill in the blank is sick, when you can't conceive a child the way that you had planned to, when the, the bills keep piling up and you just can't find a job, there are certain things that you just can't do without asking the Lord for help in prayer. And when those things come, and they will, remember this, that we can't face those battles on our own apart from prayer. How many days do you and I wake up, go to work, go about the rest of our, our week, and we don't pray a single moment? Uh, I, I say that not to shame you or convict you, but I just, just think about how often we don't spend our time praying. And then when disaster strikes, we're like, God, help me. Please help me. Please help me. And, and look, that's, that's okay. You can pray and call to God in those times, but I would encourage you to cultivate a lifestyle of prayer ahead of time. That's what we do as Christians, is we think about this ahead of time and say, what would it be like if I already had that channel open with the Lord? And it wasn't always just an emergency channel. It was just an ongoing conversation. Let me flash back to the story I started telling at the beginning. When Arthur and I ran out of gas on the way to Ensenada, um, we, we didn't have answers. We actually got very lucky because where we pulled off on the freeway, we were right next to a ramp uh, off the freeway. And fortunately, that ramp went down and not up. So we start pushing hard, and we get to the exit ramp, and there just happens to be an Arco right at the bottom of that gas station. Now, some of you don't like Arco. At that point, we didn't care, right? We're like, it's a gas station. We're so glad to pay that 35 cents, right? And so we, we get down there at the bottom. We never made it to Ensenada that weekend. Um, I think we took a AAA back, or, or we filled up the tank, and it was still kind of a little bit dodgy to get back. But I'll say this, that I think that lesson, that trip, it taught us some things about the future, right? In some ways, it prepared us for what was to come, running out of gas, preparing us to be adults, being more mature, all the things that come from stories like that. And I just, I want to say that faith in the same way, it grows over time. It grows over time. And so as a Christian, sometimes we think as a new believer, we are given the faith that we need for the rest of our lives. And that's it. We're good now. And that's just not the way it works. Our faith grows over time, and you see God responding in small ways over time. You see him growing us 
in ways that will prepare us for the future. He teaches, he trains, he builds us up so that, that way when we face our things, we realize that God has been faithful in the past and he'll do it again in the future. We've been here before and we can face the future with confidence. And so there's, there's kind of just two ways that I want to end this morning. One is that if you are here this morning and your life is going smoothly, I've already mentioned this. This isn't with some kind of wagging finger of legalism, but just like, how's your prayer life? Are, are you taking that seriously when Jesus says, hey, some things just won't happen unless we pray about it? Some things that we have been wanting to have happened for a long time. Maybe they're, they're medical things. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's just wisdom about a certain situation. Have you gone to the Lord in prayer? Have you allowed yourself to be trained in thinking about, man, I need to really pray now and pray up now as opposed to just calling out an emergency in the future? The second thing I would end with is, is more of us who, if you are stuck right now in a situation that seems hard or hopeless, um, I would just encourage you to confess your current state of belief to the Lord. And maybe even say that out loud. You don't have to say it right now. Say it on the way home. Say it, you know, on a walk later on. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a, a gap that's, that's increasingly large as time goes on between what I believe and my unbelief. And Lord, would you, would you bridge that gap? Would you help me in this, this battle for faith? And I'm praying that God will meet you richly. If you ask for faith, he will respond. Because I believe he's able, and with him all things are possible. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray as we wrap this up this morning. Heavenly Father, forgive me for uh, the times in my life where I think that I've got this, that I can handle it. Um, sometimes I, I give the impression that I can, that I just confess that even just personally, Lord. But other times, Lord, I fall so desperately short. And I, I have a hard time managing my faith and knowing where to believe and how to believe. And so, God, would you, as Jesus commanded us, would you increase our heart for prayer? Give us a sense of prayerfulness as, as we see a lack of faith in our life. God, would we would not just not uh, pull up our bootstraps of faith and say, I'm going to have more of it. But would you encourage us and remind us daily, Lord, this week even, when there's a lack of faith, that we would pray for more faith. When there's, there's something that's not going the way that we'd hope, we would hope, we would run to you in prayer and not to ourselves to just fix a problem. God, help us in our unbelief. May we cry out for, for, for more help daily. And Lord, would we respond? God, we, we take joy in knowing that when we pray, we do not pray to a wooden God or stone idol, but you are a living God. And you move on our behalf all the time. So God, we be a church that prays and asks for great things. We love you and praise your name. Amen.